Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. Today's topic is Mormonism and Freemasonry, and I've invited my beautiful wife, Brother Katie Kumsia, to be on the show, as she was raised as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be on the show today. I'm not quite sure how this is going to unfold, but I really think it's important that we talk about Masonry and Mormonism because there's a lot of misconceptions and there's a lot of different ideas out there, so I'm looking forward to seeing what this podcast can bring. Before we get started, I kind of want to make the point that this is not a podcast against the church. Uh, I have a very high respect uh, for Mormons and the Mormon church. I don't necessarily agree with all the theology and ideas, but as members, they are some of the kindest people I've ever met. And in many ways, as a membership, they very much follow the tenets of the church. No, I mean, not everybody, but, you know, on par when I compare them to other people of other faiths that I've met, they're, they're very much um, dedicated to the work of Mormonism. Well, Mormonism isn't so much a, a philosophy that you pick up and you study and you put down. If you truly believe in it, it ends up being a lifestyle very akin to Freemasonry. If you allow it to graft into your life and actions, it can definitely be a different way of living. And I also want to point out that I left the church when I was 18 years old, and my perspective is not an angry ex-Mormon or ex-religious person. It's actually, I have a very fond, uh, deep fondness for Mormonism. And as you said, I don't necessarily agree with some of the doctrine, but I really think that people need to understand what's out there and, and be more informed from both a historical perspective as well as an, an experience. The backdrop of this entire story um, is the second religious revival in, in America. The Mormon Church, I think, was created sometime in the 1830s, um, but its founder and the main prophet of the church is Joseph Smith, uh, who at one point would become a Mason. But when he was growing up, the events of the Morgan Affair and the Anti-Masonic Party uh, were things that probably influenced him. His father was a Mason, his brother Hiram was a Mason, so there's no doubt that Masonry influenced his way of thinking. Well, and it's interesting because growing up in the church, we weren't uh, obviously taught about that aspect of Brother Joseph Smith's life, and so this is some information I've come into as an adult, and it, it's been an interesting experience trying to reconcile what I was taught versus what is historically known. So. It's a very fascinating idea to think that when I left Mormonism, it took me some time. It wasn't an overnight thing, but when I finally was ready to embrace a new way of living, it's interesting that I went to Freemasonry, which in so many ways is different than Mormonism's, but not in a lot of ways. It's There's some similarities that has really allowed me to graft into Freemasonry quite nicely, I feel. Well, especially co-Masonry. 
you know, Mormons wear white clothing in their temples, and in Co-Masonry we do the same. Now, for those of you that don't understand Mormonism, it's very similar and very different from other Christian sects. They have churches that people go to on Sunday, and they pass sacrament, and they have talks uh, by the bishop, which is the leader of a ward or a church. Um, very similar to going to other churches. But they also have temples. And in these temples, they do something called the endowment ceremony. And this is very similar to Freemasonry in many ways. Not everybody can go to the temple. Um, you have to be a member that has received a recommend from, from the bishop of your ward or church. And that means that you have complied with the moral demands of the Mormon church. I know one of those is, you know, you, you're not cussing, you're not having premarital sex, um, you're not drinking or doing drugs. Are there any others, Brother Katie? Well, you have to follow the word of wisdom, which is what Brother Matthias is talking about. Um, it's a way of living that's upright and clean and moral. And if you are living in such a way with the word of wisdom, you're active in your church meetings, and you are paying your tithing, there is an actual financial component, which I will tell you, having lived in the church, it wasn't like you were paying for a recommend because you could be paying tithing and not living your moral code and not get a recommend. So it wasn't, um, some people misinterpret that, but there was a lot of things and you sit down with the bishop and it's very personal. You have a conversation and you're very open and he will recommend you to the temple by this document. It's much kind of like a Masonic passport. So the temple and the church are like two different experiences and that makes it kind of a unique christian sect it's a you know this was a an american religion it was created in the united states didn't come from europe or other parts of the world and so it has a very distinct flavor and part of that flavor in my opinion is the element of freemasonry so historically in december of 1841 18 mormon masons organized a lodge in Nauvoo, Illinois. And Nauvoo was, at that time, sort of a Mormon city. Uh, there had been a lot of persecution of Mormons, and so they had been constantly kind of moving westward. And so they'd end up here in Nauvoo. And so these Masons, who were also Mormons, uh, petitioned for a lodge. Now, uh, after this lodge had been sort of organized, uh, dozens and dozens of Mormons decided, hey, I also want to be a Mason. And one of those people was Joseph Smith. And so um, Joseph Smith was initiated in the upper floor space of Joseph's Red Brick Store. So this wasn't like a, you know, a dedicated Masonic temple like you'd find in any city. It was the second story of a store. And on the next day, um, he was passed and raised to the sublime degree of Master Mason. Um, what was novel about this is that the Grand Master of Illinois did this act uh, without going through the normal balloting and everything. By like communication. Yeah, he used his, his power, the prerogative of a Grand Master, to make these people Masons on site and kind of foregoing the formalities. And I think this had a huge impact this very moment in Mormon history, even though I don't think a lot of Mormons would agree with it, but I think this was a pivotal moment. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because I was going to back up and say, well, you know, that's what your idea of history for Mormons, but Mormons, we weren't taught that. What we 
what we were taught and I was raised in a very devout Mormon home and I would I still have some very devout family members that are very active in the church to this day and and what we were taught is that you know Joseph Smith grew up in Palmyra New York he migrated to Nauvoo that the church is not from the second religious revival didn't learn that statement until I was well into my 20s but that it is a restoration from the time that Jesus died on the cross back 2000 plus years So it's really important to have this history kind of filled in for me because Mormonism and masonry is not something they educate us about, even though the temples have a lot of Masonic symbols. And that's kind of what made me more aware that there was a connection was through that symbolism. That was kind of my gateway into tying the two together. So before we get into the kind of the comparisons or the similarities between Mormonism and Freemasonry, it's very important to kind of understand where Mormons put masonry, mm-hmm. you know, the, the opposite of perspective that, that we're having here on this podcast today. So Mormons that are aware of the Masonic influence on the church or the connection, um, they have several different theories. You know, one theory I've, I've, I've read is that masonry comes from King Solomon's temple, and the temple endowment ceremonies of Mormonism also come from the time of King Solomon. So it's almost like two different lines coming from one source. They're parallel to each other. And when I came into that knowledge of this kind of connection of Freemasonry and Mormon, Mormonism, I remember making that statement like, oh, well, Joseph Smith got a lot of this uh, ideas for the temple from the Freemasons. And it definitely was left to suspicion by my family because they ultimately said, no, there's a parallel path from King Solomon's temple, but Freemasonry is a corrupted form, and Mormonism is the more pure form. Yeah, that's a very important point, is that they believe that Freemasonry is a degenerate form of the true endowment that was passed down by the patriarchs in the Old Testament. So the what they call the endowments, or what we call the first three degrees, um, is something that was practiced by Adam and by Enoch and, and by by Noah and all these guys practice these rites because as you'll find out a little later, um, they take what we consider the legend of the third degree quite literally, mm-hmm. and it's actually an integral part of their religion. Absolutely, and the endowment ceremony is not something that is just given to anyone, which is also very akin to Freemasonry. There is that recommendation process. You have to be at least of a minimum age and very devout to your religion. The way that I've kind of come have come to understand what ward or church is like compared to the temple is I would say that the Mormons, and this is my perspective, not theirs, that going to church is an exoteric religious activity, but the temple is the esoteric. It is meant for the few and the faithful, and not anyone can just walk into a temple. You, you There is quite the vetting process because that devotion is very important, especially since the temple ceremonies are so vastly different from church ceremonies. They have lesser mysteries and greater mysteries, yes. and it's one of the things I respect a lot about the church. Now, the second theory that um, a Mormon actually told me is that God inspired Joseph Smith to become a Mason to get the incomplete version of the endowment that he could restore it to its perfection. So a little different from the first theory, but still kind of on the same idea that we have a degenerate form as, as Masons, but it's still good enough. It's still somewhat intact that he was inspired to receive those degrees that he could take it and then move it 
back to a full restoration. Which goes in line with the idea that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restorative church. So it's on multiple levels. It's not just restoring Christianity to its rightful place in the new millennia, but it's also bringing those endowment ceremonies out of obscurity and decay from, quote-unquote, the, the Freemasons. Yeah, this is the hermetic idea of the perennial religion, mm -hmm. the once universal religion that covered the globe. You know, a lot of occultists or esoterists would say that's coming from more ancient civilizations, like maybe the Atlanteans, if, it ex if they existed. But for Mormons, there was a perennial religion, which was the true teachings of Christ, and they have been degenerate over many millennia. Well, they've been corrupted, uh, especially since the death of Christ. Uh, so that corrupted form permeated all of humanity for 2,000 years. And, well, less, a little less than 2,000 years, but when Joseph Smith was born and was brought on this earth, his, his sole purpose, his dharma, if you will, if I can use that word, is to restore what's, what, what was once corrupted. So masonry enters the scene in, in the 1840s. Joseph Smith becomes um, a Freemason. Now, what I find so interesting is that it was only six weeks later, six weeks later, that the Nauvoo endowment ceremony was revealed to the elite Mormon members. So basically 45 days later, he created the ceremony after having become a Mason. To me... That's not a coincidence. Or restored the ceremony, depending on the perspective you're, you're coming from. Um, but it is, it is quite coincidental, if not even more so coincidental. And it's hard to refute that. that that's history. This is what happened. So what did happen in those six weeks? Was it really a restoration? Or was it just him trying to figure out how to adapt this new ritual he came into to this budding church that he had created? Or restored. Well, masonry is no doubt the inspiration of a lot of movements in the 17th, 18th, 19th, and even 20th century. Masonry just plays with the imagination. It's just so different. It's ritualistic. It's universal brotherhood, all its principles. It's, it's just something that I think has given a lot of inspiration to a lot of movements. So that Joseph Smith was inspired by, I have... No doubt, because he himself was such an interesting figure. I mean, he had a huge imagination. He was innovative. He he was a genius. He, he was, was brilliant. Perseverant. Yeah, some people think he's a charlatan. Other people think he's the greatest messenger of the Lord. In either case, he wasn't a buffoon. He wasn't an idiot. And he very much had a, a very clear vision of what he was doing and he was able to adapt and evolve you know it's, it's very interesting that the mormon faith uh, when it was created there were a lot of questions going around about things that the catholic church had been able to answer for a thousand years of the protestants and so he created a religion that answered all those questions that people had on their mind these answers that joseph smith and his religion created during the second revival it still has a lasting effect today because I remember growing up and always having an answer for every question that my friends who were religious had about their religion. I always had an answer, and I never felt ill-prepared for a religious conversation in my youth. Now, that didn't necessarily hold up in, when I was older, but it was very solid from the very beginning. He was a person that seemed to get very enamored with new ideas. You know, he, he liked novelties. He liked new things. Uh, he, I don't think he was a very conservative type person in the sense that um, he was willing to learn anything. 
and try to discover everything. He was a seeker to a very high degree. And if you look at his years before forming the church, um, there's a lot of stories that the church doesn't like put out there, but there's enough evidence in newspapers in, in New York um, you know, showing that he was very much into the occult, um, using various symbols that were alchemical and hermetic in nature, uh, performing rituals, and he believed in divination. You know, and and even when you read the story of how he translated the Book of Mormon, you know, looking into a hat, and he was using what is it called? The urine and thummim. This is this is this is very much. Um, plays into this idea of divination and, and using different relics in order to uncover truth. Well, and I think that's what makes a lot of other Christian sects not very comfortable with Mormonism because there is this element of ritual and secrecy that are not found in other places, symbolism and occultism. And although I would say growing up, I had a very literal interpretation. It wasn't so much an esoteric understanding. There was that idea of personal revelation that you can talk to God directly. You didn't have to necessarily go through anyone, although the bishops and the prophet had their place in, in that higher, that spiritual hierarchy, if you will. But that's why I think a lot of Christians really struggle with accepting Mormons as Christians. It's because of this really interesting component that I feel like Freemasonry deeply, deeply influenced. And because Joseph Smith's bend towards the occult. He loved Egyptology at the time. That was a really big thing, you know, getting mummies from Egypt and opening up their coffins and trying to figure out what what was in there. And so there's a lot of influence. Like if you look at the Pearl Great Price, which is one of the books that is used in the Mormon church, there's, I remember sitting in church looking at this really crazy looking Egyptian picture and like not understanding because I was fairly young. And even when I was older, I didn't understand it, but it's very Egyptian. And I think people take it in the church so normal because we grow up in it and it's something we're very familiar with. But from looking outside, it's very different. It's a very different feel. Another interesting aspect of Mormonism is this idea of three heavens uh, or three degrees of glory. You know, they have um, not one heaven, but it's divided in three places. And even the lowest of these three is better than where we live today on earth. Right. We we're told from a very young age the reason why we don't we don't get to see these other planes of existence that you're, you know there's that belief in the permanence of the soul that if we saw it we would would kill ourselves to live there. So there is three kingdoms and they're the terrestrial, telestial and celestial kingdom. And interestingly enough, those three kingdoms of the afterlife are divided into three three sub levels, if you will, within each one. So there's a total of nine different places that a soul can end up depending on the way they've lived their life. No hell too, which is really nice. I have no proof of this, but I have no doubt that Joseph Smith read Dante's Inferno <laughs> and somehow kind of took the imagery from that in developing this, this, this idea, which I think is a beautiful idea. I, I mean, I don't agree with it in a literal sense, but in a metaphoric sense, um, it's not very different from hermeticism in terms of the different planes or spheres that you, your soul has to move up and down as it incarnates um, into this mortal existence. Well, if you look at a lot of the Western esoteric traditions, there's this idea of emanations that there are planets or spheres upon spheres that have energy flowing from the divine source down to material where we live. And learning that after being Mormon, it made a lot of sense on why these 
kingdoms existed because they're emanations of the divine and anything created by God is perfect. So it would make sense that even the lowest place in those kingdoms would still be more beautiful than the densest of matter, which is where we live in this realm. The Mormon ward or church has a bishop and he has a first and second counselor. And this this trinity of leadership works all the way up in the church. So the head of the church is known as the prophet or the president of the church. And he also has a first and a second. And it I can't help but to think about the master and his two wardens. You know, it's a very similar structure of trinities moving all the way from the top all the way to the bottom. It's always in threes. Yeah, in Mormonism, we wouldn't say trinity, but we would definitely say triplets. And I know that's a small distinction, but it's a big distinction as Mormons don't believe in the trinity. But if we look at it, when I went from Mormonism to Masonry, it was a very natural thing to hear that three rule a lodge because a ward or a, a church, three ruled the church. And the first and second counselor were the right and left hand of the bishop. And that's very much in line with the senior and junior warden and the right worshipful master. So let's get into the temple ceremonies. And I don't want to get too much into detail because I do have a lot of respect uh, that Mormons find their, their rights sacred. So we're not going to be reading lines that you can find online. But we are going to point out some similarities between a Masonic Lodge and a Mormon temple. Um, because there are many, and that, that'll lead us to, a, I think, a greater discussion. But the first thing that I find very interesting is that they wear aprons, and they're uh, green aprons. They're in the shape of um, a big leaf to show the innocence of those that lived in the Garden of Eden. It very much hails from the Garden of Eden, and when they look at the aprons, the aprons are green and white instead of, and there's a lot of variation in Masonic obedience, obediences on what those aprons look like, but theirs are green and white, and they also have special white clothing they wear, um, which that apron sits over, but it's very much about that Garden of Eden and that, f it's not that they believe in the, the fall, like we're not staying with the original sin of Adam, but we are reminded of the sin of Adam so that we don't make the same. So the apron is there as a, as a reminder. Well, in fact, the entire endowment ceremony moves around this concept of the fall of man. So while the Masonic drama is around the construction of King Solomon's temple and the events that take place near its completion, the Mormon drama takes place at Eden. The first it, patriarch. The first patriarch, and it explains how man fell from this grace with God into this material world that we live in and how he must work now to regain paradise. It's a little bit different than what people think. And I, and I want to be very clear on this is that even though we fell, like Adam fell out of God's um, grace in the sense of the Garden of Eden, this isn't a negative thing. In Mormon theology, the human body is a gift. And so even though there's this fall, there is this idea that living in the mortal flesh is a good thing and that we are very capable to ascend back to the source. The, the whole process, and this is very much in line with, again, the Western esoteric traditions that believe in ascension and descension, and that there there is a positive spin to it. And that's why Mormons don't believe in the original sin so much as like, I'm stained with Adam, because we are given this existence to return back, well, at least choose to return back to God. And so the first patriarch and that experience is really, really important because that's when it all began. That's when manifestation happened. That's where we had that free will come into play. 
This is really no different than Masonry's Scottish Rite degree. I think it's the 28th degree where there's a huge emphasis on the Garden of Eden and the teachings and events that take place there. So there is a very close Masonic equivalent to the Mormon drama mm -hmm. in the Scottish Rite degrees. Um, but that being said, getting back to the point, um, both use a drama, Masonry and Mormonism. Both are using aprons. Uh, they even use um, some hats that I, I very I, different than the Masonic hat. Well, but but there's an idea that you you either you know you're wearing a top hat or the Scottish Rite cap. There's this idea that you need headwear uh, in order to perform certain ritualistic acts. It's interesting what you say about the head headwear because in the ward you don't wear anything on your head. It's actually very. Not, I would say look down on, but it's kind of taboo. You don't wear hats or anything like that. It's something that's left to the higher mysteries. And in masonry, you'll see that in the lower, lower degrees, you're not wearing headwear, but in the higher degrees, you are. So there is, there is something about trapping that energy in, in the head and trying to have this divine experience, whether it's in the Masonic experience or in the, the LDS experience. Well, even if you look at Catholicism, you know, the Pope and the Cardinals, they have a special headgear. Um, we look to the Middle East, same thing. You know, mm -hmm. headwear is a very important part of ritual. You know, there's this idea of either bringing the spirit in through the head or containing the spirit without letting it go. I mean, the the, the Jews wear a yarmulke mm -hmm. um, for this very purpose. So the headwear is very ritualistic. These aprons, they have this, this, this special clothing that they wear, which, again, as co-Masons, I think we can very much relate to. Um, and I know Mormons that have come into Comasonic Lodges and they feel very much at home in that atmosphere. The wearing of all white in the Comasonic Order, as well as in Mormonism, I, I like the symbology of it. And I know there's a lot of different interpretations on what a Mason should wear. Is it all black? Is it a tuxedo if you are in a male-only lodge? Or is it black and white? But there's something about wearing all white, and it's an interesting experience because when they go into the temple to do these endowment ceremonies, they can't wear anything from their outside world. This white is to show somewhat of an innocency throughout the ceremonies. Well, I think this kind of takes us back to Egyptian Freemasonry, to Cagliostro and the rite he created because they would wear all white. And I don't know if Joseph Smith read anything at his time about the Egyptian rite that was emerging uh, only a century before in Europe, but I have no doubt that it may be a strong connection. It certainly is for us as mm -hmm. co-Masons. Mm -hmm. Well, and the other thing is that when we look at the special underwear that people wear in the Mormon faith, which I have to say people on the outside of, uh, of the LDS church are not always very nice about the garments that these Mormons wear. And I actually... The, the special underwear, the weird yeah. underwear, the Mormon <laughs> underwear. Man, I've heard so many people make fun of this. Yeah, and I, and I, you know, first off, I don't think it's really nice to make fun of anything, but... I do feel that there's something to be said about wearing purity close to your heart all day long and to cover your whole body in it. And those special garments have symbols that are constant reminders to live a moral, just, and upright life. So I wish people would be a little bit more tolerant towards that. Yes, it is different for sure, but there, it, that idea of having white towards the heart closest to you is a great reminder. And then when you go into the temple, you're wearing white exteriorly. So you're white, you know, innocence and purity throughout. And what a lovely existence to reside in. Well, I want to make two points about the Mormon underwear. I mean, first, 
uh, there's a strong Masonic connection there because there are symbols on the garments, mm-hmm. uh, very clearly sort of a square and a compasses on the on the two breasts of the underwear that both men and women wear. And I have no doubt that that was, again, influenced by Joseph Smith's participation in our mysteries. But on a personal note, I think the underwear is not something to be laughed at. I actually think it's something that's very admirable because you put these garments on every day underneath your Mm -hmm. clothing, and it's a reminder of your duty, of your obligations to the church. Uh, When they say it protects you from evil— I'm not sure I believe in that in a literal way, but there may be some magic behind that that I can't deny. But certainly, as a member, you're reminded of the purity that you're to uphold as a Latter-day Saint. And that purity is indispensable in their salvation. Mm -hmm. Therefore, having that constant reminder is beautiful in many ways. Well, I mean, there are Masons out there who get tattoos, on their body of squares and compasses. And it's like, well, if you're willing to put that on your skin, then why why is someone who's going to put it in clothes silly? If you revere it that much to put it on your body, why is it that another interpretation is to put it on the clothes? I mean, there's lots of brothers out there that have square and compass shirts and stuff. They wear it to the world. So it's not a strange thing. It's just we think it's strange because it's not like us. But there is that obligation. I would say it's not even an obligation to the church, although there is that level it's an obligation to yourself and your contract with God that you have chosen to return to him. And these are reminders to help you because we're all full of mistakes and we need constant reminders all the time. Well, you just made me think, Brother Katie, um, the underwear, that the special underwear, the, the garments that the Mormons wear, very similar to the gowns that Masons use to prepare themselves for the first three degrees. So I wonder if Joseph Smith um, incorporated that in a constant way as opposed to just only when you're undergoing okay. ceremony of initiation passing or raising mm-hmm. um it's a it's you're being initiated passed and raised every day of your life so mm-hmm. you're always in the mode of initiation it's actually quite symbolic it's very active it's not a passive religion it's very active base which is also a masonic trait that they may not be building cathedrals or the ethereal temple not made with hands, but they are building a new way of living that, I mean, Mormonism is a lifestyle. If you actually believe and live what you believe, it's not a Sunday excursion. It is, I had church every morning. I had church in the evenings. I had church on Saturday. I, I mean, I was surrounded by this community all the time, which is not too far from the brotherhood of, of having, if you have a really strong lodge of being with other members who celebrate the same virtues that you want to inculcate in your life. Now, when we go into the endowment ceremony, we find that they have special words. They have grips or tokens. They have penalties. And they have language that's, in some cases, verbatim or very close to the way Masons explain these things in the first three degrees. Um So going through the endowment ceremony is very much like going through a Masonic ceremony where you're learning these type of things that are necessary to distinguish you uh, from other people and to be able to meet a brother, whether it's a Masonic brother or Mormon brother, and be able to identify yourself. I'm really happy you brought this up because this is the part of the Mormon doctrine that a lot of people don't know is that, you know, in Freemasonry, we say we have these signs 
grips her tokens, these words of identification. And it's, you know, I'm not walking down the street giving everyone a, a particular handshake to notify them that I'm a Mason, though some brothers do that. I don't. But the Mormons take this very literally. There is a whole reason why Mormons, they don't tell you you can't be cremated, but they prefer, if you can, to be interred into the ground. You are always facing with your feet to the east. You have certain ideas where Jesus Christ is going to use these signs, grips, and tokens and, and bring you out of the grave, which is very Masonic in a lot of ways. And they even have special names, which... I, I mean, I never knew my mother's, obviously, and I never knew my father's. They were kept very secret. And so they take it very, very literal. And it's very important in their way of living. And so honoring these science scripts and tokens is fundamental to their endowment and to the temple going process. The third degree of Freemasonry for them is literal. Is literal. And it is essential for the resurrection mm-hmm. uh, to a higher life, mm-hmm. to, to go to heaven. Um, that right there is such an important part of the religion and such an important part of Freemasonry, even though it's figurative for us, that there is definitely a connection right there. It cannot be denied. Many people talk about the legend of the third degree and the Grand Master that's in there. But for the Mormons, the Grand Master is Jesus Christ. And And I've never read that, but that's something I've definitely associated to that... There is a lot of allegory for the Freemason, but for the Mormon, it is a very literal, literal interpretation of these legends. The names have changed, but the story is the same. Other similarities is, you know, they use knocks. Um, and at one point in their ceremony, there's a veil between mm-hmm. two rooms, uh, which at one point in, in history had a square encompasses. And to go through the endowment ceremony, you had to pass through this veil. Uh, of which you had to perform um, what we call in Freemasonry the five points of fellowship. Now, a lot of these elements have been removed. There was um, a big removal around the 1920s um, because there used to be a part of the ceremony in which you had to um, avow revenge for the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. Uh, That was removed Mm -hmm. from the ceremonies. But that kind of reminds you of the vengeance decrees in Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there was another big change in the 1990s. Uh, I know they removed the penalties and the intimacy of the five points of fellowship because it was just weirding a lot of people out from well, what I've read. <laughs> it, it was because you got to think you're going from these exoteric, these lower mysteries, and then you're, you're put into this very different, higher mystery type of environment, this backdrop. And it, as the church grew, obviously more people were attending the temple, and, and it was just too much for a lot of people. I've met a lot of uh, individuals who have left Mormonism who are like, the temple ceremonies just freaked me out. And I was like, well, if you're looking at masonry, then you might need to take some time because they're very similar. But the difference is that Freemasonry has that freedom of interpretation of allegory and legend versus like, this is literal and this is how it will be. So in the opposite way, I know many people that have left the church and they want to become Freemasons because they want the wholeness mm-hmm. of the Mormon ceremonies. They're like, oh, we, you know, we got gypped because, you know, bef- you know, when I took the endowment, uh, they'd already changed so many things, and I want to see the full vision of what was intended by Joseph Smith. So I think that can go both ways. You know, some people are freaked out. Some people want the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very Masonic nonetheless. Now, again, did it come? 
Are these two traditions that came from King Solomon's temple? Is masonry a degenerate form of the true mysteries as practiced by Adam and Eve in Eden? Um, I certainly don't ascribe to those theories, but nevertheless, um, the similarities are very striking. Well, I think it's important, yes, to figure out where you stand on how, who came from what and when and how, but ultimately to really just kind of do a comparative religion type study. Go to the temple that's near your house and just look at the Masonic symbolism. It's it's amazing. They have so much rich occultism that I think a lot of its members are very blind to just because it's not taught. You know, we're not taught from a young age like to go look at the temple and to really interpret those symbols for yourself. Well, in my opinion, the occultism of Joseph Smith was suppressed um, after his death, and not as much by Brigham Young, his his immediate successor, but over the last two hundred years, you know, the church doesn't want people bringing those things up because that discourages people from joining. I think mm-hmm. the church has been moving to become more and more mainstream and to fit mm-hmm. alongside all the other Christian sects. Personally. I don't like that at all because I think the beauty of Mormonism, it's its uniqueness and its occult nature and its esoteric viewing of the world. I think it has a very unique model to be successful and to help people's lives. And so the, the need to blend in with the other Christian sects, they're pl- they exist already. You, you, know, you don't need to blend in. Well, and that's the thing that actually goes kind of against what we were taught when we were young, is that we're special, that we're we're unique, and that people will make fun of us because we don't fit in. But that's okay, because we are Latter-day Saints. You know, there's kind of this chivalristic type of idea that we are the last spiritual warriors of this dispensation. And so for me, just kind of watching the, I don't know if you'd say evolution or involution, it kind of depends on how you feel, but just watching how the church has become more modern actually brings me a little sadness because I was like, man, I, I thought I, I thought we were unique, thought we were different. And that's something that really spoke to us because you are going to get made fun of in this religion. There are people who make fun of every religion, but this one specifically because it doesn't really integrate with the rest of the Christian world. And it's sad for me, a little nostalgic to be like, oh man, I thought we were special. And I still think it's, you know, special in terms of being different from, from other Christian sects, but I think that's... As the years pass by, that's that's getting a little more and more diminished because um, everything has to be mainstream today. It's, that's just sort of the peer pressure of worldwide. Um, I think as religion is suffering in attendance mm-hmm. um, and religion is being attacked because now there's so many people that aren't religious and don't see the need for you know, I don't know how many people I encounter now that just think religion is only a form of control and it serves no other purpose. And the church must be feeling that. And they have a very strict policy um, around um, homosexuals in the church and women participation in the priesthood. And so they, they tend to be very conservative that way. And they must be hemorrhaging because of that. Well, and that's interesting that you brought up the priesthood because I remember as a child, I, I wasn't a particularly unruly person. I was actually more of a rule follower. So for me to step away from the church was kind of a big shock, I think, for my family in general. But this idea that women couldn't hold the priesthood, I, I, I could never wrap my head around it. And we were, I was told, and I don't know if this is Mormon doctrine, but that women were so special because we could have children, that men were given the, the keys to the priesthood. So what I like about co-masonry is there isn't that distinction, but, but we're all equal. And that was something that I greatly appreciated in the difference between Mormonism and Freemasonry is that 
didn't matter if you're male or female, you are equal. And it took me a little bit of time to get used to being called Brother Wilson, which was my maiden name at the time, um, because that was my dad instead of Sister Wilson. So there was that spreading of equality that I really, really liked, and I still like to this day, that is different from at least the tradition I grew up in. One thing I love about Mormonism is that in some ways it's the earliest co-Masonic body in the world uh, from a certain perspective because uh, LaJoy Humane was, you know, um, in the 1880s, you know, Madita Dem being initiated in 1882. But Joseph Smith, when he created the endowment, though initially he only allowed men in, he started allowing women before his martyrdom. So it was for both. Now, granted, it's not on the same level, but still, it was a mixed body. And that's pretty novel for the 1840s. Very novel, especially because we're before women's suffrage and equality of women. And so there is a distinct difference between the higher mysteries in the Mormon church and Freemasonry. But there, as we've been talking about this last 40 minutes or so, that there's a lot of similarities. And it's easy to see why some people struggle with the Mormon church because it is so eclectic and it's so different. But also I, to see some people find a home there because it is, it's very Masonic, although they may not use those terms exactly. Other similarities in the temple range from the administering of obligations or what they call covenants, uh, which are, you, you know, you kneel at an altar and you, you take these obligations as we do, which is very similar in that nature, to the use of various symbols like the beehive. Um, that's actually the symbol of Utah. But moving on with the story, masonry was invoked at the very end of Joseph Smith's life. Um, he had instituted polygamy. He had upset a lot of people. And there was a printing press that was um, talking ill of the church and Joseph Smith. So he used his um, militia. There was one called the Mormon Militia in Nauvoo. And he destroyed the printing press. And then a lot of people got upset. Didn't go over well. It did not go over well. And he, him and his brother Hiram surrendered themselves, and they were imprisoned in Carthage Jail, which is in Illinois. And an angry mob formed at one point outside. They wanted Joseph and Hiram's heads, and uh, they broke into the building. They shot Hiram in the chest. Died on sight. Died, died on sight. And then Joseph Smith went to the window, and it is believed that he attempted to do the grand sign of distress of a Freemason. And he used part of the words, which is, Oh, Lord, my God. But as, as the window was open and he could see somebody shot him in the chest and he fell out of the building dead. And he, he literally died saying his last Masonic line ever. And I remember when you and I went to the Legacy Theater in Utah and they had a particular film running and it was on Joseph Smith. And I still remember to this day that the screen went dark right as he falls out of the the window, I don't know if you remember this, and he says, oh, Lord, my God, and there's there's nothing on the screen. It's just those words. And by this time, I had been Mason for many years. And just the chills, just the chills, because it was like the first time I've seen the third-degree legend really become a literal call for help. And, and unfortunately, it didn't work out in his case. He, he died before it could ever be administered. But what a, an amazing line to be your last line. The story of Joseph Smith could not be more interesting, frankly. It's, <laughs> right. it's an absolutely fascinating life. And after his martyrdom, uh, Brigham Young took over, he himself also being a Mason, and he moved the saints, or the Latter-day Saints, 
further westward because of the persecution, and they settled in the Utah Territory. And for a short bit, they continued having masonry, but Brigham Young eventually made a decree um, saying that members could not be members of the Masonic Lodge. Now, was that because he didn't like Freemasonry? I doubt that. It was probably more likely that the endowment ceremony had grown to be such an important part of the Mormon society at that point that he may not have wanted people to see the similarities. Another thing I heard from an actual Mormon uh, who's also a Mason, she told me that the idea was uh, the saints were trying to survive out there in Utah and they didn't have time to go to Masonic Lodge. So he banned that activity so they could all focus on the building of the kingdom of heaven on earth. In either regard, it again played another major factor. Now, when the Grand Lodge of Utah was finally formed, um, it was basically made up of non-members. And the church said you couldn't be a Mason, and the Grand Lodge of Utah said you couldn't be a Mormon. That all ended in the 1980s, but it took almost a century for that mutual ban of affiliation to take place. Well, there's an, another interpretation, and I don't know where I've heard it, um, that the men were doing masonry so much that they were not following through on their Mormon obligations. And that was another possibility of why Brigham Young had decided to put the kibosh on dual membership because it was distracting them, as you said, from building the Great Salt Lake area. But there's a lot of different ideas out there, and maybe all of them are true depending on the person you're talking to. Um, but this idea that Freemasonry and Mormonism do not relate to each other is really not based in any truth because there's just so much of, of Joseph Smith's life, like his formative years, he was around Freemasonry. In his years that he was creating a church was around Masonry. His last words when he, he died, when he was martyred, was Masonic lines. Like, it's very clear to me that he was very, very much impassioned by the Masonic ceremonies, in so much so that he let it influence his church, which is, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, is one of the fastest growing Christian churches in the world. For those of you that are more interested in the topic, there's plenty of books out there on this subject. Um, those written by Masons, those written by Mormons. But ultimately, it is in my opinion that Freemasonry did influence Mormonism um, in a very good way. And to see Masonry spreading um, like it did into different traditions only speaks to its integrity and its importance uh, in modern day life. It's still applicable, Freemasonry. It's not something that was just good for the time that it first came into existence. It still has import in people's lives. And I think whether it's through the endowment ceremony or the three degrees of Freemasonry, it still shows relevance for literally millions of people. It's a very active tradition happening right now in this time. So I'd like to end the show with a quote by Joseph Smith, or should I say Brother Joseph Smith, <laughs> which I think sums up a lot of what he was attempting to do, and whether it's something the church follows today or not, I think is a great bit of advice. And the quote is, man is that man may have joy. And I think that summarizes in a very beautiful and concise way the idea of masonry and Mormonism, which is we're here to find joy. Not joy like in the sense of entertainment and pleasure, but the real joy. A divine joy. A spiritual joy. And that's done through hard work. That's by limiting the appetites. And that's by engaging in ritual work. So whether you're a Mason or a Mormon or both, ritual 
is a fundamental part of our lives. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari and does not represent the official views of Universal Comasonry. Universal Comasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.